February 12th coming up is our planned schedule change, and I know you don't have a whole lot of details on that. We're going to give you some details today and uh, discuss um, some of the opportunities coming up with that. So we'll be looking forward to that meeting, and we'll be looking forward to all that God intends um, for the church to bless us um, in, in beginning in February 12th. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Well, this morning, um, I was drawn to a text a while back. Um, it's it's uh, listening to John for so many years and being so blessed to hear, hear gifted expositional preaching where he takes us from the beginning of a, of a book through the end of a book and, and delivers to us the full counsel of God. And even as I took inventory of that and, and, and John's tenure here for, for six years, I was just amazed how much of the Bible John covered for us. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I'm, I'm envious that um, I'm not in a position to be able to do something like that but at the same time, I, I think I would also be overwhelmed to week after week after week um, to, to be um, faithfully delivering the Word of God. So I'm, so I'm so grateful for this position as teaching pastor. But um, as I looked at you know, something to study, I thought, well, what book haven't I been reading much lately? And First Thessalonians, in fact, Thessalonians in, in general, I've always appreciated, but I've, I've never felt like I've di- uh, dove into it. And as I started reading it, just in the beginning chapter, I was so encouraged, I thought, this, this is, um, I think, the text the Lord is leading me to. So we'll be in First Thessalonians chapter 1. And I think part of the magic with it is, with, as with many of Paul's letters and tying and how they correlate to Luke's continuation of the gospel with the book of Acts, is the complete work that the apostles enter into, right? The gospel, the delivery of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. But the work goes on, doesn't it? The work goes on. And as I looked at Paul, the missionary, we see that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a tent maker by vocation, a Pharisee by education, but he was an apostle and missionary by calling. And on Paul's Second missionary journey, he travels north from Damascus, Syria, to Antioch, and through Galatia, visiting Derbe, Lystra, and then in Acts 16, 6 through 10, we read this. And they, that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, 
but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing, <clears throat> was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul continues this, um, his, his journey. He, he has progressed um, over the top of the Mediterranean Sea. Now he's heading over the Aegean Sea through the Macedonian cities of, of uh, Neapolis, Philippi, Amphipolis, and Apollonia. Boy, is that a mouthful. Finally arriving in Thessalonica. And there, Paul preaches the gospel to great success, but also to great resistance. And in the end, he's forced to leave. And upon arriving in Corinth, back in Corinth, where he has retreated to, Paul sends Timothy and Silas. They're there for a period of uh, extended period of time, teaching, encouraging the believers there, and then they return to Paul. And when Paul hears Timothy's report on the church, he's prompted to send this letter back to the believers. So let me read. You can join with me if you have your Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything." For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who raised, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for 
those faithful servants that went before us. So many through the centuries and even millennia. Father, the foundation that they have set, the example that they have set. Father, that you, re- you recorded this in your word. Father, may we be inspired, may we be instructed by their example. Father, may you do a work no less mighty, no less powerful among us than what you did in the lives of these first century believers. I pray you would bless your word today that I would share it accurately, that I would not get in the way of what you intend to communicate to your church today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So when we look at the work of the apostles, some things are are clearly evident. There There is this deep, affection and love. There is, there is a deep investment in the lives of the believers that they're ministering to. And this letter, especially this first chapter of First Thessalonians, is such a beautiful picture of Christian discipleship. And think about it. What if Paul visited, left, and never sent a letter? What if Silas and Timothy were never sent back to strengthen the church? And to bring it home, what if our ministry stopped after we shared the gospel with someone? Paul wasn't just an apostle and a missionary. Paul was a discipler. Or to put it in another way, go therefore, right, was only the first part of the Great Commission. Jesus said, make disciples. The command, make disciples. This is the essential second part of the Great Commission. We're all not called to go overseas and be missionaries. But we are all called to disciple others. So what does it mean to disciple someone? What does it mean? And by disciple, we mean helping others to follow Jesus. I mean, it's, it's literally that simple. You come alongside You prepare them for the long haul. You help them see how to remain faithful through trial, how to be steadfast in God's sanctifying work. And I'll admit, this is is a big topic. This isn't something that we're even going to come close to covering this morning. But I do think in Paul's letter, he gives us a wonderful framework for where to start. 
helping others to follow Jesus. So what do we do? Do we simply tell them to read their Bibles, to pray and go to church, perhaps join a community group, get baptized? Yes. It's certainly not less than that, but it's so much more. True discipleship involves coming alongside another, lovingly, humbly, as a co-traveler, another pilgrim heading toward the wicked gate, as John Bunyan put it. True discipleship is not a data dump of scripture, okay? Or a list of spiritual to-dos. Do this and you'll feel better. Do this, you'll walk closer with Christ. Some of those things may be true, but discipleship is way deeper. Discipleship is a long-term investment in another. It is a gospel-driven, love-infused commitment to another's sanctification, edification, and joy in the Lord. So how do we help others follow Jesus? And when you think about who you're going to help follow Jesus the easiest thing to do is look right next door to you. Not next door to you, even next to you. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's your wife. Maybe it's your daughter. It's your son. It's your mother-in-law. It's your father-in-law. God puts plenty of people directly in our path. We, we practically have to stumble over people. So how do we help others follow Jesus? And I think from this text, we can see five clear clues that will get us on the road to helping others follow Jesus. And the first thing I see is, is right in, in verse 2, the beginning of 2, where he says, we give thanks to God always for you. Paul gives thanks to those he's discipling. When we see someone as one, when we, when we give thanks for someone, we see them as a blessing rather than a burden. And this one is largely for us. To disciple someone is to to receive a precious gift from God. Not a project to fix. It's a precious gift. When we thank God for them, we align our hearts with the very heart of God and what God is intending to do in that individual's life. But he wants to use us as a tool. When we give thanks to God for a disciple, we also model a heart of gratitude for them. Imagine how transformative it can be to lead a new believer through a prayer of thanksgiving like David's. Psalm 40, verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. 
I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. See, when we give thanks to God, we remind them of God's power, his love, and his gracious intentions towards us. Secondly, when we help others follow Jesus, we help others follow Jesus when we pray for them. And Paul says here that they are constantly mentioning the believers in their prayers. When we do that, we help them see it is the Lord who saves. It is the Lord who sustains. And it is the Lord who causes growth. And Paul had to make this clear to the Corinthian church, which seemed to get, be getting this mixed up. They seemed to be getting mixed up who they really needed to be relying on, who they really needed to be depending on. And he says to them in the, in the third chapter to the Corinthians, he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So praying then reminds a disciple to keep their dependence on God rather than themselves or other men. A common belief you might have heard is God will never let me experience more than I can handle. You ever heard that? I don't think Paul would believe it. But trials can, can truly rock and shock a new believer. But Paul reminds us God uses trials to direct our dependence to be on him. Paul says again to the Corinthian church in the very first chapter of his second letter, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So Paul is telling us that no, it isn't true that God will not tax us beyond our capabilities. In fact, what Paul tells us by his experience is that God most definitely will tax us beyond our abilities. And God's intention is that that leads us to a life of dependence upon God, not upon ourselves. And when we model a life of prayer, while we are seeking to disciple others, it not only glorifies God, it demonstrates that a life that is dependent on Jesus is a life that is following Jesus. Right? A life that is dependent upon Jesus is a life that is following 
Jesus. Well, thirdly, we help others follow Jesus when we encourage them. Simply to be an encouragement. Listen again to Paul's words here in the first chapter. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Wow. Such an overwhelming encouragement. Brothers loved by God, he has chosen you. This is Paul's declaration of the election of the saints, the certain and sure salvation in Christ. Why is it that we so often think we're helping people follow Jesus by continually pointing out things like where they don't measure up, where their theology is off, what they're not doing or not doing enough? Listen, there's, there's plenty of time for instruction, but I think we often give the impression the answer is found in these things rather than in Christ himself. We help others follow Jesus when we encourage them in the foundational pillars of the faith. And, and Paul says them here. He says, he says, pardon me, I lost my place. We help others follow Jesus when we encourage them in the foundation pillars of the faith. Yes, we are setting out on a work. It is a labor and we must remain steadfast as we walk with Jesus. But our work, as Paul says, is from faith in Christ. We labor because of the love of God and we remain steadfast because of the hope of our salvation. Paul's admonition later on in this same letter, right at the tail end, he says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So we encourage others to follow Jesus when we remind them of the certain unwavering and unchanging love of God for his children. Verse 4 says, For we know, brothers loved by God, he has chosen you. Well, fourthly, we help others follow Jesus when we anchor their faith in the power of the gospel. He says in verses 4 through 5, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So we help others follow Jesus when we remind them of the gospel's power to change their lives and 
and he depicts this so well, speaking to the Corinthians again in his second letter, he says, therefore, if anyone is Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That the Holy Spirit now resides in every believer, Paul says. And from that flows a full conviction of the truth. So, if you're intimidated by the idea of discipling and you feel like you have to come up with some fancy argument to convince a new believer of the power of the gospel or the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, Paul utterly disagrees. Paul the Apostle, the writer of most of the New Testament, says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You probably heard the story of, of uh, working in a bank and, and how, do you, how do you learn the difference between a counterfeit bill and a, re, and a real bill? Well, you don't do it by handling the fake bill, but by experiencing the real thing. And similarly, we help others follow Jesus by pointing them to the power of the gospel working in their life through the Holy Spirit, establishing their faith with full conviction in Christ. So we point to and remind them what is God doing in your life today? Not a fancy argument, not some philosophical disputation, but pointing to them what God is doing in their life today. And fifth, we help others follow Jesus by being an example. And I know what you're saying. This is really where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? This is really where we're put up, or you know what. He says in verse 5 through 8, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. For your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. This had to be so encouraging to Paul. I had this thought that popped into my head that maybe one day they were at the A for G conference. That's apostles for the gospel, right? There's Paul and Timothy. They're off to their side, standing stoically. Peter and Thomas are going on and on about that Thessalonian church. The unbelievable, the faith of these people. And Timothy just does a little. Hear that, Paul? 
their example spread throughout the region. Well, how do you know you're a good example? When those who are imitating you begin to become an example for others to follow. But in another way, you can't lead if people aren't following. But once people follow, they begin to lead. That's when you know you're helping others to follow Jesus. And there's this multiplication effect, right? Your disciples make other disciples. Those disciples make more disciples. It's really pretty simple. And when you picture this and picture it happening consistently, you can see why in the New Testament letters the Christian faith exploded across the known world in an incredibly short period of time. Thinking, I can't do that. I have too many flaws. We have to remember we are showing them how to follow Jesus, not how to follow us, right? But here's the catch. You cannot help others follow Jesus and you cannot disciple others effectively unless you are following Jesus. In other words, who makes disciples? Disciples make disciples. Paul tells us in chapter 3 of this letter that Timothy reported back on the Thessalonian believers. And in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, Paul essentially tells us what that report was. What, what was all the buzz going on about the Thessalonian church. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul learns in this message and is confirmed that they fully received the apostles' message. Not part of it, not half-heartedly, the full message with conviction. So much so that a pagan culture that never knew Christianity before this turned from the idols that they had worshipped for centuries and he says to serve the true and the living God. And he says they have set their hope on three things. One, the return of Christ, the resurrection from the dead, and a sure salvation, rescuing them from the wrath to come. So I'd say Paul poses the question to us, do we want to help others follow Christ? 
Do we take that calling for ourselves? I know I do. Do I feel inadequate? Absolutely. Absolutely. But God is faithful and he will equip us. But we're going to have to be an example. This is all in. We're going to have to turn from our idols. Calvin, the great reformer, is famous for saying the human heart is an idol factory. This isn't a one-time thing. And if you think it's hard to, to identify with a pagan culture of 2,000 years ago and bowing down to a wooden statue, you really don't have to look too far in our culture for idols. They are everywhere and continual. And they are screaming out, we demand worship. And it takes effort. It takes focus. It takes prayer to turn from our idols. And lastly, we need to be imitatable. I know that's not a word, but it fits. <laughs> we need to be imitatable. On the one side, people around us, especially closest to us, they're imitating us no matter what. But are we imitatable in such a way that we help others to follow Christ? Well, this might sound like an off question to ask, but what's in it for us? What's in it for us to, to dive into this, to, to invest in other people's lives, to make some self-sacrificing choices, to do some scary things, to put ourselves out there? Well, I love Paul's words in the second chapter of this letter. And he tells them what's in it for him. He tells them what it means. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 19, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? It is, it is you. Or he says, is it not you? Those we invest in, those we pour ourselves into, those that we lovingly, humbly come alongside, that, that fruit is pleasing to God. And it is literally a, a, a crown upon our heads as we enter into the presence of Christ that is coming. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that spoke truth to our lives. We're so thankful for your faithful messengers that delivered that word, that spoke that word, that taught that word. And Father, we're thankful for those individuals 
that came alongside us, that showed their love for us and for you in such a tangible and real way. Father, we want to live lives like that. We want to have lives that are spent and being spent for your glory, for your kingdom, and discipling others, helping others to follow Jesus. And we thank you for this privilege, Father. And we trust that you will go before us, you will equip us for it as we depend on you. And we will give you all the glory for it, Father. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, leading up to this, as I said, I, I, I found this text a while ago and then um, in, in our discussion as the elders, as we're leading up to um, starting an adult Sunday school class beginning February 12th, we're going to have two hours. You'll hear more about that at our, at our meeting. So the adult Sunday school class going from 9 to 9.50, we're going to take that for a period of time that we can do a, a focused group study. And, and the secondary benefit to it of, of, of having the adult Sunday school hour separate from the worship session is we think we're going to be able to uh, manage the volunteer positions in such a way better that everybody's going to be able to spend time in the Word and worship on a Sunday morning. Certainly won't be perfect. There's going to be bugs in the beginning, uh, but we're going to work through this, and, and we fully believe that this is going to be an enormous blessing to our church, and not coincidentally, for our first adult Sunday school class, we're going to be taking Nine Marks Building Healthy Church series and their little book on discipling. This is going to make it clear, it's going to make it accessible, and it's going to make it a whole lot less scary. And we're going to learn together what it means to disciple others in a much deeper way than we covered today. So I hope you join us for that. There is a sign-up sheet in the foyer and uh, um, indicate it, it, if you're a couple and you only need one book or you want two books and we'll get those ordered and, and we'll start that on February 12th. So I hope you can join us.